Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. What I'm going to do tonight is uh, part two uh, of a two-part series on uh, a prayer pattern. So if you're here tonight and weren't here last week, can I recommend that perhaps you grab hold of the podcast uh, off our website and that'll fill you you in. Uh, Between Easter and Pentecost, we're doing a series that we've simply called From Easter to Pentecost, and we're concentrating on the whole issue of prayer. If you read the early book of Acts from Jesus' ascension to the time the Spirit was poured out in chapter 2 of that book, um, you'll notice that the early disciples spent a good deal of time uh, up in the upper room, gathered together as a community, and, and were praying. And so we've done, we're doing just a really basic series on prayer and getting our prayer life sort of reordered. And so last week I began uh, a message based around the Lord's Prayer. And as I said last week, it's a very personal um, kind of approach to the whole subject because I've used the Lord's Prayer as a pattern of prayer for nearly four decades and it's been hugely helpful for me, and the aim in this series was perhaps to help other people get a handle on um, how you, you might approach prayer. Now, I, I want to say right off the bat, I'm no expert. I'm not um, John Hyde. I'm not Reese Howes or David Brainard or some other wonderful intercessor. Uh, you know, if you saw my prayer life, actually, you probably wouldn't be particularly impressed. Um, but I have kept it up over the years, and I'm just offering this to you. Uh, as a way of being able to spend an extended time in prayer if you want to. Um, you may already have a really satisfying pattern of prayer, in which case just you can have a listen and stick this aside. I started last week by, answering, by asking and then trying to answer two simple questions. Number one, why bother? Why bother praying? I mean, surely God is sovereign. He does what he does, and he really doesn't need our help in prayer, so why bother? And then secondly was kind of, okay, then I'm convinced that it should, we should pray, so how do you do it, all right? The answer to the first question, why bother, I simply responded because it really matters. It makes a difference. In fact, I'd go further than that. I'd say it makes the difference. And I gave a number of quotes last week. I want to add to those quotes this week by suggesting that God chooses in his sovereignty to co-govern earth's affairs through you and I as his people. And Richard Foster says, we are not locked into a predeterministic future. Ours is an open, not a closed universe. We are co-laborers with God to determine the outcome of events. Peter Gregg, in his wonderful book that we've recommended to you, How to Pray, says, There are wonderful things that will happen if we ask for them. There are unspeakably terrible things that will prevail unless we harness our wills with God's God's will to resist them in prayer. And then the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth said, God does not act the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence on God's actions. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. That really struck me when I read that quote. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of our world. You know, it's easy to criticize the disorder of our world. It's easy to whinge and whine about the government and a dozen and one other things. But to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against that disorder. And you and I 
need to pray because prayer really matters. Now, the second question was, how do you do it? Now, I started by suggesting a couple of very, very practical steps. Number one, set a time. Number two, choose a place. Peter Gregg says, keep your prayer simple, keep it real, and keep it up. All right? Then what I did last week was I invited you to sit down and sit in on praying through the Lord's Prayer, uh, using it as either an extended period of prayer or or even maybe for a shorter time. I, I sort of joked this morning and said, you know, people can look on and say, well, Don, it's fine for you to spend an extended time of prayer. We pay you to do that. We've got a real job, and it's not possible for us to do that. Well, you don't have to spend hours. You can spend 15 minutes. Actually, you can pray through the Lord's Prayer probably start to finish in 25 seconds. But it, it's more than that. It, it, you know, you can pray it that way, but it can lead you into uh, just avenues of prayer. And so we, we started. I said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I talked about the fact that that speaks of starting with thanks and praise and worship. Coming in, as the Message Bible says, with the password of thanks. We have so much to be thankful for in our nation. And in the midst of Maybe some things that aren't so good don't lose sight of the fact that we're a very blessed people and we should express gratitude for it. What I've done is I've listed uh, and memorized a whole lot of the names of God as they are revealed in Scripture. And I pray through those. And sometimes one of them will be an off-ramp into an extended neighborhood of prayer. And then I'll come back and just pray through the others. The second line goes, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I talked about how um, I used that line to invite his rule and his righteousness into the circle of my touch. That's my, my family, my extended family, and this faith community. I pray over those things. I name people by name. Actually, as you go out tonight, we've printed off a small card, and if you'd be interested, you can take it. Uh, on that card uh, are 31 either attitudes or virtues uh, one for each day, and I, I've started to pray those over my grandkids. I, I kind of wish that I'd had it earlier and prayed it over my kids. Because sometimes, you know, you're praying for your family, you're praying for your people you love, and you think, well, Lord, bless them, keep them safe, keep your hand upon them, show them favor. All of those things are good. But this little card gives you 31 virtues and, ad and attitudes. So, so you're praying about the, the rever a spirit of reverence to be on them on day one. And day two, you're talking about a spirit of, of humility. I think day eight for today was a spirit of servanthood. And uh, you might like to use it just to pray through for your children or your family. So I use that, uh, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, to ask for God's kingdom to come. My family, our church family, the city, the nation, and the nations. Up to this point in the prayer, the key pronoun has been your. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And after an expression of honoring his name and giving praise and thanks, you'll notice that the second part of the prayer, the key pronoun is us. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. I think it's important to get the order right. We begin with worship. We begin with thanks. We begin with gratitude. And then we can move into the portions of the prayer that, con that, that concern our day, that concern our lives. And so I'm picking up tonight from the next phrase, which says, give us today our daily bread. So... I'm sure you're aware, but bread was the staple diet in biblical times. A, a bit like potatoes for Irishmen, rice for uh, Filipinos, pasta for an Italian, and uh, McDonald's for an American, okay? 
tongue-in-cheek. If you're American, please don't be offended. I'm, I probably should apple, said, said apple pie, but um, we all know what a staple food is like, and bread was a staple food for the, for the ancients. So ubiquitous was it that bread became synonymous with just food in general. And if you wanted to talk about food in general, you talked about bread. That's why Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. He was saying, you know, physical food is not what it's all about. There's more to life than just the bodily needs. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 26, the Bible actually talks about the staff of bread. And in ancient times, with no footpaths or paved, you know, pavements, um, people carried a staff and they walked over rough ground and it helped them keep their balance and, and enabled them to walk well. And uh, so, you know, when we talk about the staff of bread, we're talking about the things that we need physically to, to live well. And if you take that into our age, we might be talking about things like enough money to meet our needs. We might be talking about employment, a roof over our head and food on our tables. And Jesus instructs us and he releases us to ask for those things. And I say he, he releases us very deliberately because I suspect that you're a bit like me and when I get to this part in the prayer, I, I'm, I have a tinge of guilt in asking for things uh, because I live in a society that, is, that abounds with things. And, and it's like, how can I possibly ask for my physical needs when I live in a relatively wealthy portion of, of the world? You know, 690 million people uh, a day are starving and I'm supposed to pray for my physical needs. Is that even right? Now, maybe you don't think like that, but, but I do. And, you know, without doubt, we should be concerned about those figures and that fact, and we should be concerned about world poverty and do all that we can to try and change it. But in spite of that, Jesus says to me, you pray for your daily needs. Sometimes praying for my daily needs seems a little trivial. And, uh, you know, God's concerned with big things. He's not concerned with the trivial things. Well, he says, you pray over those things. You know, I, I confess this morning that in the past, you know, I have mocked people who've said they pray for parking spaces, you know, so that they don't have to walk an extra 30 metres to the mall. And uh, um, I, I was saying this morning, you know, if, if I prayed for a parking space, I'm sure the Lord would say to me, you know what, you desperately need to walk the extra 30 metres. You need the exercise, son, so I'm not giving you a park right outside the door. But, I, you know, as I say, I kind of mocked gently and mocked people who have said, oh, I prayed for a parking space and I got it. And, and I'm, I'm still not even sure about the theology or even the ethics of praying for a parking space, but, but I do know this. I suspect that in my desire to make God more concerned with the larger issues of my world, I might have actually missed the fact that he's not too busy or disinterested to care about the much smaller and less significant issues of my life. And perhaps in my desire to make God bigger, I've actually made him smaller. You know, I, I don't know how you think of the heavenly courtroom, but sometimes I imagine God's cosmic control room, a bit like, you know, the movie Inside Out, if you've ever gone to it with your grandkids or your kids. A control room surrounded by lights and buzzers, and he's hammering out instructions on his keyboard. Ukraine, got it. Tornado, got it. Tornado. Yep, got, got, got tornado. Comet. What comet? Who said anything about a comet? I didn't know about a comet, you know. Whacking out the instructions on this and, and in the midst of all of that going on, a little voice says, would you mind if I had a car park, Lord? 
And I can imagine God saying, what? You have got to be kidding. I'm trying to deal with a comet. Hang on, while I think about dealing with that comet, let's reroute the trajectory of that comet right down into that car park and onto that car where that voice came from. I'll teach him to ask for parking spaces when I've got all this going on. I've got a good imagination. <laughs> and I know that probably you don't think like that. And I'm actually, I'm not trying to encourage super spiritual people or practices. But as I say, I wonder, in my misguided attempts to honour God's largeness, I've actually encouraged people to expect him to be less involved in their daily lives. And he really does want to be involved in your daily life on not just the big things, but the little things. And I had a perfect example of this just this Last fortnight, um, my, my daughter and her family live in Auckland and they've been telling me about this strange little cat that's been coming around. And it's obviously wild and quite traumatised and they've been doing all they can to encourage it in and feed it. And, and the little girl next door, who lives right next door to them, Sof Sophie, uh, Sophia, she went home and she's seen what was going on at my daughter's house. She went home and said to her parents, I'd love a little kitten. And her parents then heard her praying that night and for the next number of nights, God, could I please have a kitten? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> two weeks ago, a couple of days ago, after the two weeks of prayer, a neighbour turned up and said, hey, this little kitten's arrived at our doorstep. We don't know where it's from. We don't need a kitten. Would, you, would one of your kids like a kitten? And Sophia's prayers are answered. She's got her kitten called it Aslan, apparently. <laughs> the other cat's called Ricky Baker, so get that one. <laughs> he cares. He cares about a little girl's cry for a kitten. You know, what, what, maybe you don't think like this, but what do you imagine the face of God is like when you go into his presence each day? What, what look on his face do you see or imagine? Because the answer to that question will tell you a lot about yourself and a lot about your spirituality. Because for some of us, his face is stern, serious, angry, somewhat disappointed. For others, it's aloof, disinterested, and distracted. He's busy with the cosmic things. He's not interested in what you're asking. Or could it possibly be that it's warm, welcoming, relaxed, unhurried, gentle, and kind? And the look on his face will either discourage you from asking for anything or will encourage you and embolden you to ask for even the small things. Jesus says, ask. He said to ask. Ask for the big things. Ask for the intermediate things. Ask for the little things. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Don, doesn't the scripture say, just after that portion where Jesus says, ask, it says the Father knows you need before you even ask. Why would you bother? It's an exercise in futility to ask when he knows exactly what you need. Well, it seems that asking is really important. You know, Jesus is on the road and, and they bring a blind man, blind Bartimaeus, and they bring him to Jesus and say, uh, and Jesus says, what do you want? I mean, seriously, Jesus, really? Doesn't the white cane and the, and the, and the guide dog give you a clue what, what, what this man might ask? And yet Jesus says, I want you to say what you want. I want you to ask me. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said, asking is the rule of the kingdom. In Psalm 2, God says to his son, 
Ask me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. If the royal divine son cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect the rule to relax in our favor. Ask. And James says, you don't have because you don't ask. On another occasion, Jesus said to the crowd, which of you, having a son, asks of you bread, daily bread? He's asking for bread. You're not going to give him a stone. And then he follows it up by saying, ask and keep on asking. You know, like any parent or grandparent, I think God loves to say yes whenever it's possible. You know, we have our grandkids down and they'll often say, Papa, Kaza, can, can we have a midnight feast tonight? I'm not going to say, you selfish little toads, how dare you ask for that? You just had pizza. There's 690 million people a day starving and you want a midnight feast? You're joking me. I don't say that. I've already prepared the midnight feast for them. I knew they were coming. I've been down to the shop and I've bought the licorice all sorts. They're allowed to share in them. Okay? It's important to ask. There is something about asking that's relational in a way that thinking is not. You say, again, you you give something to the kids, and I used to do this right from the start, and hand it to them, and they'd take it and go to pull it, and I'd hold it. And we'd be having a little tug of war until they said what? Thank you. And and they could say, well, I was thinking thanks. I'm sorry, but thankfulness and thankfulness are not the same thing. There is something relational about saying thank you, about asking. It involves vulnerability and trust. When you ask for something, you're risking. You're risking a refusal. You're risking a rejection. Now, while I occasionally feel guilty for asking for blessings and for resources and for daily bread, it's not wrong to do so. In fact, Jesus encourages us to do it. And I think of the great prayer, you know, you might remember the book a few decades ago, the Jabez Prayer, 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10, and it says, Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you'd keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. And it says, And God grant him what he requested. I'm really surprised the last line doesn't read, and God said, what a self-centered prayer. Forget it. No chance. Uh, Apart from actually bringing the small, apparently insignificant requests to the Lord, you know, whether it's the kids' exams or the business deal or the holiday plans or whatever, when I pray, Give us this day our daily bread. There's three aspects that I, that I focus on when I pray this. And the, and the first has to do with the table of showbread that if you've read the Old Testament, you'll know is found in the tabernacle or the temple in the holy place. Every, every week the, the bread was brought in and, pray, and placed before the Lord in, in this holy place. The, the showbread actually in the Hebrew literally means the bread of face or the bread of presence. And so when I think about daily bread, the thing that I pray about is, Lord, I don't take for granted your presence. I know that you said you'd be with me always, but I want to say thank you and, and, uh, and increase it today. I need, your, I need your presence. I want your favor. I want to live in that place where I live before you. Actually, the bread of face is the, the face is the same word that we use as we bless you every at the end of every service when we say, Lord, lift up your countenance. Lift up your face toward me. It's praying that. It's saying, Lord, I want to live 
under that covering of your presence and your face. So I pray about that on a daily basis. The second thing I pray when I come to give us today your daily bread comes from Luke chapter 24, the walk to Emmaus. You know the story. Two disciples are walking totally distraught. Jesus has been crucified. Their hopes have been dashed. And Jesus joins them, and they don't recognize him. And he starts to unpack the scriptures to them and said, you know, shouldn't the Messiah have actually gone through the suffering? Don't you know the scriptures? And so when they get to Emmaus, they're so excited, they invite him in to have supper with them. And in the breaking of the bread, it says he was made known to them. So when I come to, Lord, give me this day, daily bread, I pray for the breaking of the bread of revelation. I say, Lord, when I come to your scriptures today, would you open them to me? I want to see you better than I saw you yesterday. Would you open my eyes to see you so that I can love you more? Because the more we see him, the more we love him. So I pray for the broken bread of revelation. The third thing I pray for when I come to give us today our daily bread comes from Matthew 15 and Mark 7 and it's the story of the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter is demonized and she comes to Jesus and says Lord would you release my daughter and he ignores her and she pesters him until finally he says what do you want and she says and he said look it's not fitting to take the children's bread and give it to dogs I mean goodness me how to discourage somebody she was a Gentile, and the Jews called Gentiles dogs. And it's almost like Jesus is picking up that, that, that kind of language and saying, you know, you, you do know you're a Gentile dog. How to win friends and influence people, eh? And she answers him magnificently. She says, yes, Lord, okay. But even the, even the dogs get the crumbs from the children's table, from the bread. They get the crumbs of bread. And he says, Fantastic such faith. Go your daughter as well. And I pray for the bread of healing, children's bread. I pray for grace to be among us to heal sick people, to, to work miraculous grace. It's the children's bread. And we need to ask for daily bread. Some people say, oh, we don't see this, we don't see... And I want to say, well, are you asking for it? And your prayer, are you pursuing that? Are you praying for those things? Because ask for it. Give us this day our daily bread. The next line is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Boy, we could spend weeks on this. Psalm 51 verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Getting forgiveness is having a clean heart. Ministering forgiveness is having a right spirit. And we need both of those. You know, quite frankly, that's often where I actually start my prayer time. Before I even come with praise and worship, I might have things that I really have to deal with. Lord, I'm sorry that I said that. I'm sorry that I spoke so harshly there. I'm sorry that I thought that and even had the gall to express it to somebody. It might be where you start. There's something about confession. Don't excuse, rationalize, or justify. When the Lord puts his finger on something, say, I'm really sorry. David again prays, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I have not hid hidden. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And John says, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't let condemnation and guilt keep you out of the presence of God. Take it into the presence of God and give it to him and confess it and say, Lord, I'm really sorry. Friends, there's more grace and mercy in God than there is sin in you. And you say, well, you know, I, I, but, but, but I confessed that yesterday. His mercy's in you every morning. He's not tallying it up. And he's not saying, you know what? That's the 67th time you've asked me for that. And I'm getting ticked. Every morning it's new. 
Every morning, he cleanses it. He throws it in the sea of his forgetfulness, sticks up a sign and says, no fishing. Just leave it there. I've forgotten it. You do it too. So we could say much more uh, about that. And the thing is, when you have been forgiven, you need to minister forgiveness. Okay? It's got to be passed on. Because we are forgiven in proportion as we forgive, the scripture actually says. So be gracious. Keep your hands open and pass it on to others who need it. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil, the passage says. Here we come into the whole area of starting what we might call spiritual warfare. You know, the book of Revelation tells us that Satan has been cast out of heaven. That's good news. But the bad news is we live where he's landed. And we live in contested space. And uh, Satan may be a vanquished foe whose demise is inevitable, but the aggression of his death throes remains terrifying. C.S. Lewis said this, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed and counterclaimed by Satan. Since there's no neutral ground, there can be no neutral people either. Everyone has to pick a side. Nobody gets to be conscientious objectors in this war. You know what? And in the West, and particularly in our secular society, people feel incredibly uncomfortable talking about evil, talking about the devil, talking about personal evil. You know, if you ever talk about the devil, it's in mockery. You know, red tights, pitchfork, hot stuff kind of material. Nobody really takes it seriously. Andrew Del Banco, who's the author of a book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil, says, we have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction and pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century, and I'd add to that the 21st century, has gone on, it has gotten harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing and butcher and Muriel have ju are just bad psychological, sociological adjustments. You've got to be able to see evil and recognize it when you see it. The Bible teaches that evil is real, it's large, it's cosmic, it's organized, it's subtle, it's pervasive, and it is personal. When Paul wrote about dealing with evil at cosmic levels, he told the Christians at Ephesus how to prepare to deal with it. And I want to read you a portion from Ephesians chapter 6. This is a message translation, and it does it so well. It says, and that about wraps it up. God is strong, and he wants you strong. So take everything the Master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so that you will be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no weekend war that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps, a life and death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get. Get every weapon God has issued so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You will need them throughout your life. God's word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, Prayer is essential to this ongoing warfare. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirits up so that no one falls behind or drops out. Pray long and hard. And the original says, pray 
all kinds of prayer, using all kinds of prayer. There's different kinds of prayer. There's praise, there's worship, there's petition, there's intercession, there's spiritual language. There's the praying of the scriptures. Use all kinds of prayer, Paul says. As I mentioned this morning, and when, I, when Karen and I first took the church in 1994, for those of you who don't know, we were in big trouble. We were on the ropes, as it were, and we honestly didn't know whether the church would actually survive the trauma it had been through. And one of the things I did through that season is I prayed the scriptures. There was a couple of psalms particularly that meant a huge amount to me. One was Psalm 74. And Psalm 74 actually is the psalmist lamenting the fact that the enemy has come in and obliterated the temple. That they've taken the axe to the carved work of the temple. They've ripped things down. They've thrown things out. There are dead bodies everywhere. And it goes through and there's no prophets. We don't have the presence of the Lord. And then right at the end it says, and yet... God is the God of all of the earth. And, and in the midst of the destruction and desolation, the psalmist cries out that God would remember them. And I learnt that psalm off by heart, and I prayed it day by day by day over this, over this community. Another psalm that meant a whole lot to me at that time was Psalm 126, which talks about coming back from exile and joy filling the hearts of the exilic people who are now making their way back and they're coming back out of captivity and they're laughing and saying, look what God has done for us. And I used to pray that saying, Lord, could that psalm be true of us? And in the end of the psalm it says, and when you go out bearing seed, weeping and casting your seed, you'll come again with rejoicing. Man, I prayed that psalm over this church for months and months and months. And I remember sitting just down here when a missionary came through one time and we were in the midst of worship and he leant over to me and said, Hey, Don, Psalm 126, when you go forth with seed weeping, you'll come again rejoicing. Boy, he'll never know what that did to my heart because I'd been praying that over this community. Find scripture that really speaks to you and use it as a tool for prayer. So I don't know how to pray. Pray the scriptures. Pick the psalms. There's something, you know, there's, there's a psalm for every need. You say, well, Don, you don't know how depressed I am. Try Psalm 88. Starts in darkness and ends up pitch black. It, the psalmist knows, they, they know exactly where we were at and what, what we face and how we sometimes cry out and God doesn't seem to come. Psalm 22, my God, my God, where have you, where have you been? Why have you forsaken me? You haven't come. The psalms cover everything we face, and you can turn them into prayer. Can I have the musos to come, please? Just while I'm finishing this and talking about spiritual warfare, I would want to say I don't think that we have license for some of the macho militancy that I've seen and heard in some circles, you know, where, where people uh, go into spiritual warfare and they're rebuking principalities and powers over nations. And, and uh, you know, I, like... I'm, I'm a neophyte, you know, I've been around for a long time, but there's lots of things I have no idea of, and that's one of them, and it's an area where I think, whoa, you just, you want to be careful what you're dealing with. Jude says, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil, did not dare condemn him for slander, but just simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And I'm careful about people, you know, I just, I have some concerns about some people and the way they go about spiritual warfare. And I just think, you know what, you may be biting off more than you can chew. Even the angel didn't do that. And if the angel, Michael, didn't feel released to, you know, call out Satan, I'm not sure that you should either. 
You know, one of the best ways of spiritual warfare is praise and worship. If you want to do spiritual warfare, worship, praise, honor God, because as you lift him up, the tin gods that stand on their little stands trying to manipulate and maneuver God and, and people, they, they are put in their place as God is lifted up. And we need to know why we worship and that there is power in the way we worship. And I mentioned this morning, you know, you come into a, a Pentecostal church and the songs go and people clap their hands and sometimes it seems nothing more than kind of keeping the beat and, you know, with a happy clappy crowd, you know, they clap at anything. Well, I mentioned this morning, there's, you have to understand why you do what you do. Why do you clap? Well, number one, Psalms 47 verse 1 says, Clap your hands, all you people shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Now, we know clapping is a, in, in our society, if you want to honor somebody for something they've done or something they've produced, we, we do that by clapping. And that's, that's, that's universal. We, we, we do that because we all understand what that means. And there are times in our worship where our clapping is exactly that. There was another thing that went on in the ancient world that we don't know quite so much about in our culture, and that is clapping as an act of derision. And when people were, when they saw a defeated enemy, what they would do is go, and they clapped and hissed over them, the Bible says. I was mentioning this morning I played a lot of cricket growing up and I was an opening batsman and for those of you who know anything about cricket, the idea of the opening batsman is to blunt the new ball, you know. And, and so sometimes your job is just to stick around as long as you can, be a pain in the rear end of the, of the bowling side, wear the shine off the ball so that the guys that come before you have an easier pathway. Now that means that sometimes you don't always score as quickly as you might like to score. And there is a horrible thing that happens in cricket when, when people are getting tired of the opening batsman just playing his defensive shots and not getting runs. They start like, oh, come on, and they go. It's called the dreaded slow hand clap. Okay? And every cricket batsman dreads it. It's derisive. It's, Get a move on. When we clap, there is a two-edged sword going on. We are saying, Lord, we honor you for who you are. And at the same time, those little tin gods on their little stands are put down. And in a sense, we are being derisive. Not directly. We're not directly turning to them and going, we're just honoring God. And as part of that, he's putting down some stuff. So when you worship, do it with some understanding. All right? Worship God. And that's how the prayer finishes. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And that's how I finish my time. Just reiterating who God is in worship. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.